The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good to see you guys. Um, man, super excited to be in here. Like Aaron said, this, is, uh, this has been a long time coming. Um, really, really, really excited to be able to hang out here, mostly because uh, we don't have to rush out. <laughs> We can hang out afterwards and fellowship and, and talk, and there's not going to be chairs, you know, tore down and set up and all that kind of stuff. So super excited for that. Um, everybody get one of these? Everybody got one of those? Okay. If you got green, then you're better than the people that got blue. It's nothing personal. Um, just kidding. Uh, there's, a, there's a whole thing of pens up here, too. So if you need a pen, you can come on up and grab one. Um, they're, they're available to you. That's my gift to you, actually, <laughs> is a pen. Uh, you can keep it, um, no problem. Let's see. So we are starting a new series. Um, we're actually starting Wednesday nights back up. We took the summer off, uh, which was great. We did a lot of fun things, and uh, we had. Did, did anyone here go to first Wednesday? event that we did this summer. That was a blast. We had food and games and worship, and it was killer. And now we're, we're kind of back in the saddle doing our midweek service. And we're launching a new series that I'm super excited about. Um, it's basically just an Old Testament overview. And what an Old Testament overview basically is, is that we are going to rip through the Old Testament at like a rapid pace. Uh, we're actually going to attempt, uh, we're actually failing the first night at this, but we're going to attempt to do one book a night every week. So an entire book of the Bible. So like Genesis, next week, Exodus, um, which is crazy, which is exciting. And I'm, I'm, I'm excited and scared at the same time because, um, for instance, Genesis is 50 chapters of Bible. And so to try to take 50 chapters and condense it and throw it in a blender and sort of serve it in one cup is a little bit tricky um, to do. And so I'm, I'm approaching it fearfully and uh, with trepidation, but I'm super, super excited about it. So just a few things. I'm, I'm going to spend maybe 10, 15 minutes just giving you guys kind of an, an intro to why we're doing this series. And then we'll get into the book of Genesis. Does that sound good? Let's, let's pray real quick. Father God, I, I thank you so much for this opportunity uh, to study the word. God, I thank you for all that are here that you've brought tonight. And I, I know, God, that you, you don't do things on accident. Lord, that these seats are filled um, with people that are ready to hear the truth of the word. And God, we know that you are a God who speaks. We know that your Holy Spirit is here uh, ever ready and present, wanting to communicate to us the message of Jesus. And I pray tonight, God, that you would do that through the book of Genesis, God. Lord, as we embark on this uh, series, God, I just pray for great fruit to come, Lord, as we uh, dig into the entirety of the Old Testament, Father. We are so excited to get to find you in the scriptures and to sink our teeth in. So, Holy Spirit, would you be here doing what you do best, glorifying Jesus in our hearts, would you do that through the scriptures? God, give us a hunger, I pray, and a thirst for the scriptures that could not be quenched. And Lord, may we walk away just treasuring the living word that you've given us. And I just pray that in Jesus' mighty and powerful name. Amen. Hey, if you got Bibles, go really quick to Romans chapter 4, verse 18. I want to ask the question to start, why study the Old Testament? 
Um, my guess is, if you guys are like me, uh, you are fearful of the Old Testament in a lot of ways. Uh, probably more familiar with the New Testament, more familiar with the Gospels, with the stories of Jesus and the epistles and things like that. But the Old Testament can sort of loom um, over your Christian life like this big mountain that you don't know how to climb. Uh, and, and honestly, a lot of us feel that way. How do we approach it? How do we study it? How do I get into some of these harder books and harder verses? And so uh, we are going to take it head on. But asking the, this question firstly, why is it important to study the Old Testament? If you look at your Bible, actually, um, probably two-thirds, uh, if not more, of your Bible is Old Testament. It's a huge chunk of the Bible that we treasure and love um, and hold so dearly. So why, why is it important that we study uh, the Old Testament? If you're in Romans, I just want to look at chapter 4, verse 18 to 25. It says this, Paul the Apostle, in the New Testament, he says, in hope... He believed. Okay, who's he? He's talking about Abraham. He's talking about Abraham who's in a character in the Old Testament. In fact, a character in the book of Genesis. In hope, he, Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he was considered his own, when, I'm sorry, when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now, verse 23 is where I want you to cue in. He, Paul says this about this Old Testament story of Abraham. He says, but the words... Quote, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. For it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. And what is Paul saying there? He's basically saying that this story of Abraham, okay, and for those of you that don't know, Abraham is the first patriarchal character. He, he is the first Jew, the first uh, one called to be the children of Israel, um, and this promise that God gave Abraham was not uh, given just so Abraham could know it. It was given so that we, thousands of years later, could read about it. He says specifically, this promise was given for us as well. Uh, he says, the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Now what Paul's saying there is that what happened in the Old Testament, what was written in the Old Testament... Though it was not written specifically to us, it was written specifically for us. So everything that Abraham went through, everything that Adam and Eve went through, everything that Cain and Abel and Noah and all of these characters we'll talk about here in Genesis, everything that they went through, God specifically recorded it in the Old Testament so that we as New Testament Christians could look back and learn from it. It's important, Paul basically is saying. Now, uh, look at Romans 15.4. I'll just read it here. Romans 15.4, Paul says later in the same book, he says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. 
So all of the things that were penned and written in the Old Testament were penned so that you and I here, 2,000 years after Christ, can sit in this building and study the Old Testament and come out with what? Hope. Not just with theology and not just with philosophy and not just with some practical life skills, but that we would come out after looking at the, whole, the Old Testament with hope. Now, most people, when they read the Old Testament, they feel a lot of feelings and hope isn't usually one of those. You read about these stories where God seems cruel or they read about these stories of war or where where men do terrible things and, and hope doesn't seem to be at the forefront. But what Paul is saying is that the purpose of the Old Testament is that we might have hope. Hope in what? Hope in Jesus. None of the Old Testament is an accident. It's all there with great intention. God placed it there. One of the most important things that I've ever um, was told and, and understand about the Old Testament is you need to think of it as a giant arrow pointing forward to Christ. The purpose of the Old Testament scriptures is an arrow. All of our attention in the Old Testament should be drawn forward to the coming of the Christ. And in the New Testament, you have a giant arrow pointing backward, drawing all of our attention back to the coming of the Christ. New Testament and Old Testament, both pointing to one person, Jesus. The point of the Old Testament, the reason for the Old Testament, is to show Jesus. Now, the second reason that we study the Old Testament is because it's completely misunderstood. It is so misunderstood. There are so many Christians that do not know how to read this thing, do not understand what, what they're reading and how to file it. Um, some of the things that people say about the Old Testament these days are um, uh, people are attacking whether it's even true. Saying that, you know, oh yeah, we believe in Jesus and we believe in, in the, new, the, uh, the New Testament, but these stories about Noah's Ark and Daniel and the lion's den and Moses and the parting, I mean, those can't be true. And you guys heard that? This is super popular, not only in secular thinking, but even in the church. People questioning and saying, well, these stories, maybe they didn't really happen. And maybe they were just symbolic. Maybe they were just folklore, if you will, from uh, the ancient Jewish culture. A lot of people misunderstand the Old Testament in that they they think it's just like a raunchy R-rated movie. Okay, and you might be like, what are you talking about? But if you get into some of the books like First and Second Samuel or Judges, uh, there is some serious violence, like graphic violence. Um, there's stories about, uh, with graphic detail about how a man thrusts a blade into another man's stomach. There's um, adultery. There's uh, all kinds of, of just crazy stuff. I mean, David and Bathsheba. And there's, there's all kinds of stories that you would read. And if you were a super conservative, conservative um, person and didn't ever read the Bible before, you probably would be like, I don't know if I should read that. Okay, that's, that's raw. So a lot of people say, well, the Old Testament is, is just primal. It's like, it's just a primal book. It doesn't apply to our current day. Another thing people would say um, in misunderstanding the Old Testament is that God is duplicitous. That the God that we read in the Old Testament doesn't seem to be the same God that we read in the New Testament. Have you guys ever thought that or felt that tension before? It's a very real tension. Why is God so angry 
And the Old Testament, why is he wiping out an entire city called Sodom and Gomorrah? And then in, in the New Testament, we see Jesus who's, you know, we, we picture him with, the, with the, the little kids coming up to him and he's so nice and everything like that. Well, that's really just a misunderstanding. Uh, but a lot of people think, well, okay, so there's a different God in the Old Testament? Is this the same God as the New Testament? It's all just sort of misunderstanding. And because of these misunderstandings, it's so crucial that we know the Old Testament. It's so crucial that we value the Old Testament. And it's crucial that we know the answers to these questions. Because like I said, probably two-thirds of the Bible that we love and carry around is Old Testament. And we need to know what's in there. And we need to know why it's in there and what the purpose is of the Old Testament. Uh, Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, he says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So he doesn't just say only the gospels and only the New Testament epistles are profitable for teaching. He says all of the scriptures are profitable so we as Christians need to be prepared to take on all of the scriptures, amen? Another reason that we're studying the Old Testament is because we live in an era of extreme biblical illiteracy. Did you know that? Now, I grew up in a Christian home, so I grew up hearing stories of the Old Testament. I mean, Noah's Ark, Daniel in the lion's den, Joseph in the coat of many colors. I mean, these stories to me were just life. Um, my daughter, who's two years old, she knows those stories. But there is a generation now who is not growing up necessarily. I'm not going to say we were ever a Christian nation, but we used to be a Christian-ish culture, at least where people told Christian Bible stories. There's a generation now of teens and kids that don't know these stories. Who's Moses? I mean, who is Daniel? I mean, what are you, who's Elijah, the prophet? What are you talking about? I mean, I, I'm hearing this firsthand from our, our youth pastor and our junior high pastor. Man, these kids don't know these stories. And I, I think a lot of people actually don't know the stories in the Old Testament. So we need to be reminded of these stories. And we need to, to, to dive into them. Now, why are we covering so much ground? Okay, as I said, we're, we're, doing, we're trying to do a whole book and a night which terrifies me. I don't know how I'm going to do that. So much to cover in one night. And, and don't worry, we won't be here for three hours. But why are we doing it at such a rapid pace? Uh, the Bible is a symphony. Okay, the Bible is a symphony. It, it's not meant to always just be chewed on in small portions. If, if I sat down and took Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, and, and, and I, I listened to 10 seconds of that symphony, and then I shut it off and I didn't listen again for a week. But I really meticulously poured over that one. Now, uh, would I be understanding the beauty and the complexity of that song? No, absolutely not. And most of us approach the Bible just like that. We take one verse, we take two verses, we take three verses, we, we read those, we, we make a devotional out of them, or we preach on them, and that's good. That's important. But if we only do that and we don't get the big picture of the Old Testament and the New Testament, then we get in the weeds. Does that make sense? Now, one of my favorite things to do as a worship leader is to hear a song, a worship song that moves me, that, that brings me to worship. And, and, I, and I don't think when I listen to those songs, I don't think like, well, why is this song so good? And what notes are they playing? And, and why do they build here? And why do they uh, have this lyric there? I just enjoy the song. I let the song take me somewhere. But then I go back and I study the song. And I say, well, what makes this song complex? 
What are the notes that are put together? What, what is the scale that he plays there that, that makes this song amazing? So what I want to do with you guys is, is we do so much verse by verse, let's dig in deep and figure out what it means, that sometimes I think we get in the weeds, And sometimes I think we need to get above the scriptures and see the big narrative that God is weaving all through the Old Testament. Does that make sense? In order to do that, we have to move at somewhat of a rapid pace. Otherwise, we're going to get in the weeds. And trust me, we get in the weeds quick. I mean, I could spend all night talking about Genesis 1-1. I mean, it's, it's, there's so much there, but I want to fly over this thing with you guys. And it's still going to take us a while, but 30,000 feet, baby, we're going over it. And we're going to get the big picture and try to see what God did and is doing in the life of humankind. Now, uh, a few things just to note really quick uh, about the Old Testament before we dive into this. This is an ancient book. Okay, this is, this is ancient literature. I can't stress that emphatically enough. Uh, the book of Job is thought to be the oldest book in the Old Testament. Did you guys know that? Uh, it's not Genesis. It's actually Job. And Job is actually thought to be somewhere around 4,000 years old. Okay, that's old. <laughs> okay, 4,000 years old is, is insanely old. And from Job forward, we have some ancient scriptures um, that, that we're studying. So with that, there is going to always be cultural context gaps, right? Where, where you say, well, what in the world? Why do they do that? Well, they lived 4,000 years ago. People are people. People haven't changed, but customs do. Culture changes. There's a reason that China's culture is different than ours. And and if we moved there, it would take you a lot of years to uh, acclimate to that culture. So as we look at the Old Testament, we have to remember this is an ancient, ancient document. Uh, And it tells a true story about ancient people. Uh, The second thing to know before we start is, as I said, the Old Testament is raw. It's raw and it's real and it's unedited. And I don't think God makes any apologies over that. Um, God presents mankind as he is. He does not present mankind with a lens. He does not uh, have pure flicks for the Bible, okay? It's not like, uh, oh, hold on, I got to read the Christian version of the Bible because this one's too raw. No, God says, I want you to see humankind. I want you to see humanity for what it is. Not that we delight in these things. We don't delight when we see uh, violence and murder and and, and all of these even incestuous relationships and, and garbage. We don't delight in those things. But God says, I need you to see them. Why? Because if we don't see them, then we don't see the need for those things to be done away with. God needs, us to, God needs us to see in reality how wicked man actually is so that we look for the redemption of mankind. Does that make sense? Number four, a few things to note before we start this series. Uh, the Old Testament is a library. Okay, it's not one book. Uh, the whole Bible is a library. Did you know that? It's made up of multiple books. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. I mean, there's so 66 books that make up a library that we call the Bible. Um, and even though it is one book, it's many books together. And so to un- the reason I, I point that out is that these books are sorted by, not by a chronological order, meaning they're not put in order of when they were written. They're put in order of genre. 
Okay, so you go into the movie store, you have the romantic section, you have the horror section, you have the guy movie section, uh, that's what I call it. You have the, the kids movie section, you know, and it's, it's sorted by genre. The Bible is the same, mostly. Okay, so, so you have the poetic books, Psalms, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes. You have the narrative history books, First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel, things like that. You have the prophetic books, Isaiah, Elijah, things like that. So it's important to know that as we go in. And, and lastly, one, one last thing just to say before we, we dive in. Um, God is the same in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament. This is not a different God that we're looking at. He is the same God. The writer of Hebrews makes that clear. He says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He is unchanging. If it appears that God is different in the New Testament than he is in the Old Testament, it's because we've misunderstood who God is and we don't have a deep enough understanding of the covenants that divide the Old and New Testament. Okay, so I want to just make those things very clear. Now, if you guys got a piece of paper, pull it out. Uh, I wanted this to feel... Not so much like a sermon, a little bit more like a Bible class, okay? So um, if you weren't expecting a Bible class, I'm sorry, give it a chance, give it a few weeks. Um, but I, I would love this to feel uh, like something that we're kind of sitting in a living room and we're just kind of digging in together. And the, the way I wanted to really engage with you guys was to give you some sort of a handout every week that is going to be almost like a fill in the blank. But this is not the fill in the blank that like literally has one word missing and you're like looking for that word. <laughs> I hate those fill in the blanks because I'm not even listening to the teaching. I'm just like, where's the word to fill in the blank? You know, I, I can't stand those kind. This is, this is different. This is more like I want you to write down what you see as the answer to these questions as I'm unpacking content. Okay, uh, so I, 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 I'll explain to you what the questions are, and from time to time I'll be like, hey, here's the answer to that question, but I really want you to think, well, what is, what is the answer that I see to this question from what he's saying and from what I'm seeing in the book? Does that make sense? Just take notes on there. I mean, draw stick figures. I don't care. Uh, you know, I mean, um, doodling can help. Um, Fill in the blanks with what you see. I'm going to walk you through this. This is going to be sort of the um, framework by which I want to attack each of the books of the Bible. It may ebb and flow a little bit, but um, I'm kind of holding my feet to the flame a little bit on this and forcing myself to answer these questions for every book, which may be tricky at times. So looking at this, we're going to break each book into four different uh, We're going to attack it from four different angles, I guess you could say. The first thing we're going to talk about in each book is the historical context of that book. And what that basically means is uh, who wrote the book? Who was it written to? When was it written? All of the kind of nuts and bolts stuff um, that will uh, need to be known as we go into it. What's the genre of the book? Uh, what are some interpretive challenges of the book? Um, so that's the historical context. And that's just really kind of like, what is this book from the very like nuts and bolts, as I said, kind of a thing. Secondly, we're going to look at the thematic context of the book. And really what that means is what is the theme of the book? Okay, so, so today we're going to look at what is the big picture theme of the book of Genesis? Um, there's millions of sub-themes, but what's the big one? 
And the reason I want to point that out to you guys before we get into the story is I want you to be able to look for it as we look at all of the stories in in there. Um, we'll also look at some sub-themes, okay, some smaller, um, you know, themes that are in those books. Um, I, I'm going to try to summarize every week. This will be tricky. I'm going to try to summarize the entire book into one sentence, okay, and so that's something that you can write on your paper when we get there. Thirdly, we're going to look at the narrative content, okay, in other words, what are the actual stories that make up the book, Okay, so in Genesis, holy cow, this is a reason, we're splitting it into two weeks, by the way, because there's 50 chapters, and I guarantee you 60% of the stories that you know in the Bible are in Genesis. They're all in there. It's a huge book, so, but we're going to actually try to take you through quickly all of the stories um, in just a big flyby kind of approach. Uh, and then fourthly, and most importantly, we're going to look at the redemptive sequence of the book, and here's what that means. Um, I just used the words redemptive sequence because I wanted to sound really smart. <laughs> so uh, hopefully you guys think I'm really smart because I don't even know what that means. No, uh, what that means is just sim- simply this, is how does this book point to Jesus? This is the most important question we could ask. Uh, not oh, what, what things in here are going to help me have practical wisdom. Uh, that'll come up. You know, not, not, not what theology is in here but primarily, but, but more importantly, as we looked at uh, just a minute ago, as Paul says, the Old Testament is written so that you might have hope in Christ. Every single word in this book points to Jesus, okay? It does. The point of the Old Testament is to make the way and the need evident for Christ to come and to atone for the sins of his people. So we're going to ask that question every single time. If I don't, call me out on it, okay? How does this book point us to Jesus? And it's going to get tricky, but we're going to figure it out. And then, and then lastly, of course, how does this book apply to my life? In other words, what in the world does this mean to me uh, in 2016 in Medford, Oregon, okay? Uh, so that seems like a lot, but we're going we're gonna to move through it fairly quickly. So let's jump right in. Book of Genesis. You guys ready? I'm ready to pass out from that long intro. Whew. Okay. Here we go. Uh, some nuts and bolts. Historical context. Everybody get a pen? Everyone's got a pen? Okay. It's my gift to you. Just want to make sure. Um, Aaron's going to be mad because we're going to have to buy more pens. <laughs> uh, okay. Historical context. Genesis. First book of the Bible. Okay. Uh, it's the book of beginnings. The Name of Genesis literally means beginnings, okay? Uh, the Hebrew word is bershith. Uh, it's B-E-R-E-S-H-I-T-H-E. That is the Hebrew word that simply just, just flat out means beginnings. The Greek word that translates that means origins. So if you really want to break Genesis down into one word, that's your word, beginnings, okay? If, if I had to break it down to even smaller than a sentence into one word, I would pick that word, beginnings. It is the beginning for us, and that's extremely important to know. The author of Genesis, as far as we know, is Moses. Uh, he never actually says in the book of Genesis that he is the one writing it, but all of the rest of the scriptures point to him as the author um, of Genesis. Uh, The audience, who is it spoken to? Uh, The audience would have been the Jewish people, the early nation of Israel, shortly after um, they wandered in the desert, somewhere before uh, Moses dies. So that would sort of been his audience. The genre of the book of Genesis would be uh, narrative, 
In other words, it's mostly stories uh, mixed with some poetry. Okay, am I going too fast? This is, this is the boring stuff, and then we'll get into the exciting stuff. Um, number two, the thematic context. Let's talk about the theme. What is the theme of Genesis? What's the big picture? The primary theme of the book of Genesis is really well summed up in the, beginning, in the, uh, the name, Beginnings. That is the theme of this book. It's the beginning of man. It's where we see man created. It's the beginning of sin. It's where we see the fall. It's the beginning of a nation called Israel. The first person of the nation of Israel, Abraham. And it's the beginning from our perspective of God's redemptive plan. It's the beginning of all of these things. It's the starting point, the launching point of each of those things, which is amazing. Um, I'm not even going to get into sub-themes because I'll just muddy everything up. Um, how would I summarize the book in one sentence? Are you guys ready? I worked hard on this. Um, God begins mankind. Man begins a sinful legacy. But God begins to enact his eternal plan of redemption. God begins mankind. I know it's bad grammar, but uh, it works. Man begins a sinful legacy, but God begins to enact his eternal plan of redemption. It's all about beginnings, okay? So what makes up the book of Genesis? What are actually uh, the stories that comprise this? First of all, you can organize the book of Genesis into two primary parts, and, and pretty much every theologian and scholar agrees that this is the best way to divide Genesis, uh, and that is chapters 1 through 11 is God and the world. God interacting with the world as a whole. And then chapters 12 through 50 is God and Abraham's family. So for the sake of time, because I spent so much time on the intro, we're just going to look at chapters 1 through 11 tonight. And uh, next week will be the whole rest of the book of Genesis. There's so much packed into chapters 1 through 11. It's insane. I'm going to try to take you through all of it super quickly. God takes nothing and makes something out of it. He takes a creation that was formless and without void, or formless and void. He, he takes it and he shapes it and makes it into something unique and special. God is an artist. He is a creator. He is the first imaginator. Um, he, he's the first one to have an imagination. The reason we have an imagination is because he did. He thought up everything and he took nothing and made something from it. He did it in six days. The crown jewel of God's creation, we read in Genesis, is mankind. Okay, God created the heavens and earth for mankind to dwell in. Okay, it's the place where we were designed to live. God sees Adam, the first man, in the creation that he's made for him, and he notices that something is wrong. You see, God himself is a community. That means God is three in one. Okay, the theology of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So God himself has community and he looks at Adam and he sees him by himself. And he says, this is not representing me. Uh, if, if man is made and created in God's image, then man needs community. So he makes woman. Okay? And, and God creates Eve and plants them both in the garden. God then gives, in Genesis, all in Genesis chapter 1. God then gives what's called the cultural mandate. You might write that down. That's a huge, huge, huge statement. God tells Adam and Eve the cultural mandate, which basically is, hey, go make babies, 
and go create civilization. Go cultivate the raw material of the earth that I've planted you in and make civilization. Now that's interesting, actually, and we could go on about that. I'm going to try not to. Uh, it's interesting because we think of urban or city as sort of less spiritual than being in the forest, but actually God's intent for man was to cultivate forest and make it into a city. That's why in heaven we see eternally a city. Super interesting. Man has union with God. He walks in the garden with God, has perfect closeness with God. God creates boundaries for man. He says, it is good that I know what's good and bad and that you don't. Because guess what, mankind? Guess what, Adam? You are not good at deciding what's good and bad. You are not good at knowing what's good and bad. I am because I'm God and I have all wisdom and all knowledge in the universe. So I don't want you to eat of this tree, the tree of what? Knowledge of good and evil. And he sets up boundaries around them. On the seventh day, God rests, which is important. Huge theological theme. Okay, uh, God says, I rest not because I'm tired, but because you will get tired and I want to teach you to rest. Then, Chapter 3, everything changes. Chapter 3 is huge. The age of innocence ends. Chapters 1 through 3 are the age of innocence. It's an era where God and man could dwell together. And then in an instant, everything changes. Satan okay, enters in chapter 3 into the story. He tempts Eve, the wife of Adam. Eve is deceived Adam says, did God really say, attacking the truth, just as Satan still does thousands of years later, right? Did God really say that? She eats of the fruit. She gives it to her husband. Adam fails to lead his wife. He doesn't stand up for what he knows to be right and ultimately bears the blame, as we'll see, for the fall of mankind. Man hides from God. God says, where are you, Adam? All of a sudden, Adam is ashamed of his nakedness. He hides in a bush. He doesn't want God to see him. He knows that something is wrong. He all of a sudden is insecure about himself and who he is. And from that moment forward, everything changes. God curses man because man chose to disobey God. And because of that, God states that work will be hard. Childbearing will be hard. Marriage will be hard. God and man are now separate. There's a division there. Human relationships will be hard. All of this is just in chapter 3. Man blame shifts, of course, just like man does. It says, it wasn't me. It was the woman that you gave me. It was her fault. She made me do it. Eve even shows the first signs of legalism, where she says that God said something that God didn't even say. Uh, and then God makes a promise. All in chapter 3. Man blows it, and God instantly makes a promise. He says that through the seed of the woman will come Someone who will crush the head of the snake. And so right away we see the beginning. In just three chapters, we see the beginning of man. We see the beginning of a sinful era. And we see the beginning of God's redemptive plan. In three chapters, all of that starts in Genesis. It's huge to understand. Chapter 4, we see and meet Adam's children. Cain and Abel, right? You guys might know the story of Cain and Abel. They both created a sacrifice to God. Abel's was acceptable. Cain's was not. Abel's was a sacrifice of a lamb. Blood of a lamb. Cain's was a sacrifice of the ground. It was the dirt. 
It was what he could produce with his hands. And for whatever reason, we find out later, Abel's was acceptable, Cain's wasn't. Cain was jealous, and we had our first murder in mankind. Cain murders Abel out of jealousy. Chapters 5 through 10, we meet the descendants from Adam to Noah. Okay? There's a long lineage in there, all kinds of people. Um, we will not go through that. The wickedness of man increased mightily in the world. The story of Noah opens up by God grieving, saddened by the evil of man that spread all across the world. It was so evil, it was so base, it was so terrible that God actually had to cleanse it with water. God decides that he's going to start over, in a sense, with mankind. So he calls Noah, the only faithful, the only righteous man that seemed to live at that time. He says, take your family, build an ark, this giant boat. Everyone thinks he's crazy. He builds this ark. The floodwaters come and destroy all of man besides Noah and his family, which by the way is a phenomenal picture of Christ. That they got into this ark and were saved from the wrath to come. Then we read about this covenant that God makes with Noah with this rainbow. There's lots of covenants that we see in Genesis. He says, I'll never flood the earth again. And here's the sign that you'll know a rainbow, which is an amazing picture of the cross as well. That we have a, a picture of God's peace with man. We meet the descendants of Noah's sons. And then chapter 11, there's a crazy story uh, called the story of the Tower of Babel. Where man again increases after the flood. Man increases once again and is a mighty nation called Babel. And they come up with this uh, new invention called the brick. And so eager to make something out of it, they build this tower that actually attempting to reach to the heavens. And uh, it wasn't because they wanted to get to God. Primarily, it was because they wanted to show off their power. And God says, I won't have it. He confuses the language. Everyone was speaking one language at the time, and that's where mankind splits and separates and goes on. Now, that's as far as we're going to go for narrative uh, tonight. We'll move on next week into the rest of the book. So, I know that's a lot, but are you guys kind of following some of the stories there? Um, now, I want to look at the redemptive sequence, okay? I want to ask the question, how does this book point us to Jesus? And this is really the skill uh, that, that I want you guys to be able to go away from this series feeling like you know how to do. Like you know how to pick up the Old Testament and read it and see how Jesus fits into these Old Testament scriptures. I really want that to be a tool that you feel like you can utilize and have. And so we're going to do that in the book of Genesis. Now, there is a million, <laughs> a million places that we could find Jesus in the book of Genesis, even in the first 11 chapters. And I wrestled with which one do we look at. Uh, but I think that the primary picture of Jesus in the book of Genesis in chapters 1 through 11 is found in the character Adam. It's found in the character Adam. In Romans chapter 5, Paul gives this commentary on the book of Genesis. And he says in verse 12, he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man... And death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. So what Paul is saying is that in the book of Genesis, again, we see the beginning of an era of sin. 
We see the beginning of a legacy of man's sinfulness. And it all comes through one man. God lays all blame on one person. It's not Eve, it's, it's Adam. Adam was responsible to lead his wife. And Adam failed in that. Adam chose to disobey God willingly just like Eve did. And now, as Paul says, all sin has entered the world because of Adam. The result of that, Paul says in Romans 5.14, he says, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. So from the point of the beginning that we talked about, when sin entered the scene, now death reigns over the world. What does that mean? It means that now we have war. It means that now we have violence, we have greed, we have prostitution, we have rape, we have abortion, we have depression and murder and injustice and idolatry and jealousy and disease and hatred and deceit. We have all of these things that entered into the world because of Adam, our father. We are linked back to Adam, our father. He is the reason all of those things have come in. Now I was thinking about that today. And I was thinking about how interesting it is that when you're a child, you look at your father and you think, you see things that you think you'll never do, right? I'll play with, I'll, I'll play with my kids more when I'm my father's age. Uh, I'll, I'll work harder or I'll, I mean, I had a great dad and there wasn't a lot of things that I thought that, but I still thought that about certain things. You know, uh, I won't be like that. I'll be different. I'll do this. I'll do that. Or you see your father fail or you see your father's weakness and you think to yourself, I won't be like that. But the truth is we all eventually in a lot of ways become like our father. We all hit a point in your life where you look back and you say, wow, I never thought that I would be like my dad in that way. But yet here I am. Here I am. The truth is that we all become our father. The story of man is really summed up in Adam. The story of humankind is all traced back to our father. Adam, he's our father. We can't get away from that. He is the representative of mankind. He is the beginning of our legacy. In our DNA, at the deepest level of who we are, we share characteristics with Adam. And mankind has displayed that over and over and over again. And then you say, that's not fair. <laughs> okay, why do I have to suffer for something that some dude did thousands of years ago? And you say, well, I wouldn't have done that. Yes, you would have. <laughs> you see, Adam represented us not only because he was our father, but he represented us because we all would have done the same thing. Well, how do you know that? Well, because we still do the same thing every day. We're sinners by nature and by choice. We still choose to reject God's plan for our lives. We still choose to step outside of God's will for our lives continually, just like Adam did. So we know that he represents us. We know that there's a connection between us. He is our father, whether we like it or not. The story of man is summed up in the father that we all share, and that is Adam. We fall like Adam fell. We hide from God like Adam hid from God. We blame shift like Adam blame shifted. We disobey God like Adam disobeyed God. We fail to lead like Adam failed to lead. 
We fail to delight in God over our own decisions, just like Adam did. We are his son, we are his daughter, and what, like it or not, we are connected to him. So, what hope is there for us? <laughs> I mean, if, if this is our dad, and that's who we are, and, and, and in our DNA, in the core of who we are, we share this problem of sin with Adam, how do we escape that? You ready? You can't. He's your father. You can't escape it. You, you are the son or the daughter of Adam. And like it or not, you are related to him. So what hope is there? Listen, you must be reborn. You cannot change who you are unless you become a new person. You are a son and a daughter of Adam and you will complete the legacy of Adam unless you become a new person and you join a new family. The story of humanity is really a story of two families. It's a family of Adam and it's a family of Christ. What Jesus did was he stepped into the scene and he said, in order for my people to break the cycle from Adam, they have to literally become a new person, starting with me. So look really quick. If you have your Bibles, this is, this is worth turning to. 1 Corinthians 15. I'm not making this up. This is Pauline theology here. 1 Corinthians 15. He again gives commentary on Genesis. Verse 42. I'm sorry, verse 45. 15:45. Paul says this, he says, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So again, Adam represented the beginning of what we'll call natural life. He was the beginning of the natural realm, the physical life that we all leave. Jesus, however, represents the spiritual beginning. Verse 46, but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. And look at 47, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. So in, in Genesis, God breathes himself into what? Dust. Man is literally a combination of some of who God is and dirt. And at the fall of man, what's left? Just dirt, Okay. We are men of dust because of Adam. But the second man from heaven, Christ, breathes the spirit back in. Look at verse 46 again, or 47. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man, who is Jesus, is from heaven and was the man of dust. So also are those who are the, of the dust and is the man of heaven. So also are those who are of heaven. So through Jesus, God breathes his spirit back into man. And just in verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now, what Paul's saying in a very confusing way is that we are no longer children of Adam because we've been born again. No longer, we're not born of dust anymore. We're not, what he means by dust there is the physical things. 
We're not, we're not born in just a physical body. Now we are spiritual, eternal beings that are called for an eternal purpose. That was the plan of God. Okay. How does all that matter in my life? How does that apply to me as a Christian today? We need to understand who we were before we can know who we are. Okay, let me say that again. You need to understand who you were before you know who you are. Why does it matter, all of this theology about Adam and, and how Adam was made of dirt and how now I'm a, in a new family and Jesus wasn't made of dirt? And why does all of that matter? It, it, it matters as confusing as it might be because we have to know who we are, where we came from, before we can know who we've been made and where we're going. I had a friend as a kid, and uh, he was my friend from like sixth grade all the way through high school, and he never met his real dad. He, he uh, had an adopted dad, a stepdad, or, or whatever, that, that was a great dad, but um, something I noticed even as a kid about my friend is that he was constantly questioning, I wonder what my dad was like. Like, I wonder what, like, what my dad looked like. I wonder if I do this because he did that. I wonder if I think this way because he thought that way. I wonder if I struggle with this because he struggled with that. It's natural in us to sort of question where we came from. Who was my real father? And I think as Christians, it's very important that we do the same thing. We have to say, who was my father? Why am, the way, why am I the way that I am. Psychologists are now saying, actually, that it's very important and crucial for kids to hear and know something about their real dad. Even if he doesn't end up being the dad that's really in their life, and even doesn't mean that, 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 uh, that he's even really their dad, but it's important that they know something about their real dad. And I think the same thing applies for Christians. Before we can understand that we are in a new family, we need to understand where we came from. But we're no longer children of Adam. We have a new patriarch. We're in a new family. C.J. Mahaney said this. He said, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, leading us to faith and worship, we have to see it as something done by us, leading us to repentance. Only the man or woman who is prepared to own his share in the guilt of the cross may claim his share in its grace. What he's saying is, is that before you can actually understand and enjoy the new family that you are in, you have to understand the family that you were in. We were of Adam, and we were destined for hell. And we were filling the shoes quite readily and quickly of Adam, doing all of the same things that he did, walking down all of the same paths that he did, self-serving lives. But God has plucked us from that. And he has adopted us and he has put us in a new family. And now we don't look back at Adam and say, oh, that's who I am. We look at Christ and say, that's who I'm becoming. Does that make sense? It's important that we look back. But at some point, you have to stop looking back and say, but that's not who I am anymore. This is important. <laughs> Adam is not your father anymore if you are saved. You hear me? He's not. You are related to him, but now you're reborn. Now you're adopted into a new family. And now you have a new nature. And you are a new creation. Some of us just can't believe that. 
We still feel like we are of Adam, but the truth of the gospel is that if you have been saved, you are no longer in that family. I watched an interesting documentary last night about the Pentagon in 9-11. And uh, it was fascinating. You know, a lot of people didn't really think about the Pentagon because the Twin Towers was so prevalent, you know, and everyone was watching that on TV. But uh, it was really interesting. The, the plane flew in and there was jet fuel and there was a huge flame and like 117 people died. And it was this crazy thing. And this is supposed to be the place where you know, uh, national defense is and all of this stuff. And maybe like not even 30 minutes after the plane crashed and everyone's confused and everyone's running around and trying to get out. They're told all of a sudden, hey, there's another plane coming. And so everyone's freaked out. And they're like, oh my goodness, we got to brace for another plane that's going to crash into the Pentagon. And so these firemen were in there. They, they got the news, but they weren't able to get out in time. And so they're literally in the courtyard in the middle of the Pentagon on their knees crying and praying to God to save them as they prepare for this other plane to come and to crash into the Pentagon. And, and they wait and they hear a jet coming. And they're counting down the seconds and it gets louder and it gets louder. And right when they think it's going to slam into the building and they're ready to literally die and their life is ready to be over, they see an F-16 fly by. Where's the jet? I never heard about that before. There was a glitch that had happened to where the, the, on the radar, the plane that they had already seen fly into the building was showing like it was going to fly in again, but it was really just a ghost. <laughs> It was the plane that had already flown. So there was no other plane coming, but everyone thought that there was. And they're bracing and they're ready to die. And really, they're fearful of nothing. There's nothing coming. Unfortunately, this is how most of us live as Christians. We live stuck thinking that we are still in the family of Adam when we are not. We are removed from that family and we are in a new family. And when we allow ourselves to feel shame, and guilt, I'm not talking about good repentance and I'm not talking about conviction, but guilt and shame over what we've done in the past that Christ has covered. And when we live out of anxiety because we don't believe that we're really forgiven and, and we don't believe God truly loves us and we don't believe God is truly reaching out to us, you are choosing to be Adam's son. You are choosing to fall on your knees in fear for a plane that isn't even coming. <laughs> We are commanded not to live in Adam, but in the new Adam, Christ. And in him, there is no fear. In him, there is no trembling. His yoke, and his, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And we are commanded to be in that family, not in the family of Adam. Amen? We need to shake the dust of this earth off our feet and say, you know what? I'm not dust anymore. I am destined for heaven. I am an eternal creation called to eternal things, made for eternal purposes, atoned for by an eternal God. Paul goes on in Corinthians, I'll just read it in 1520. He says, for as by man came death, talking about Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, talking about Jesus. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. That is our family now. Not Adam. Adam failed. Christ didn't. 
Adam was weak. Christ was not weak. Adam was a terrible father. Christ is the ultimate father. Adam couldn't lead his own wife. Christ leads the entirety of the church. Adam forsook his bride and said it was her. Christ died for his bride. His back was broken for his bride, right? That is who our lineage is tied to now, not Adam. Now we need to act like that. You will be who you are called to be when you know who you are now. We have to know who we were, but move from that and say, who are we now? We are children of the most high God and our lineage is of Christ. And he is coming back and he's coming back to destroy all of the dust and take us with him. The world is not our home. So what does that mean? It means that we hold earthly things loosely. It means that we are on mission, that we are pilgrims, that we don't stake our houses too deep in the soil because this soil is not the point. Our lineage is elsewhere. Jesus came to talk about a kingdom that was not here. It was somewhere else. What does all that have to do with Genesis aside from the fact that it's Adam? Everything. I wrote this sentence down because I want to get it right. May the book of beginnings always be a reminder, not primarily of the beginning of sin and death, but more importantly, a reminder of the new beginning that we have in Christ. Genesis is not meant to just remind you of the terrible beginning of Adam and Eve's legacy of sin. Genesis is called, or Genesis is calling us to look at the new beginning that we have in Christ. Because you see, Genesis is not the end of the story, is it? It's the beginning of the story. What is the end of the story? Christ reigning forever on an eternal throne with you and I ruling the nations in paradise forever. That's the end of the story. Genesis is the beginning. But it's the beginning of a lot of things. So when we read Genesis 1 through 11, I want you to remember that. I want it to remind you of the beginning that you now have in Christ. That you're not who you were. That you're not just a child of Adam, but you're a child of Christ. And that you have a new family and a new legacy and a new purpose and a new identity and a new reason to get up in the morning now. Because you're an eternal creature with eternal purposes. Amen? Cool. Let's all stand, guys. Jesus, we just thank you tonight, God, that we could all be here, that we could take a glimpse and take a look at the beauty of the book of Genesis. God, I pray that that truth would affect the lives of every man and woman in here, that God, we would begin to release our identities being wrapped up in Adam and begin to embrace our identity as being wrapped up in you, Christ. That we would let go of the dead things of this world, shake the dust off of our feet, and begin to embrace the plans and the purpose and the calling that you have for us. Lord, I pray for these, I pray for these, your people, God, that you would equip them, that you would fill them with the Spirit, and that you would call them to great things. And God, as we journey through the Old Testament uh, from 30,000 feet, God, I pray for clarity to come. That this, 
this redemption story would just shine out over all of the other stories. That you are doing something bigger than we can possibly imagine. And we get to see it all through the Old Testament. So God, that's my prayer for this. And we love you, Lord. We just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. God bless you guys. Um, We'll be back next week looking at the second half of Genesis.